Hey, I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor of The Story Houston, a new church taking shape right now inside the loop of the world's greatest city. For the months of May and June, we're gonna be talking about friendships and the importance of friendships. You know, when we were kids, we all knew friendships were incredibly important. We grew up though, didn't we, and something changed. We started prioritizing other things over friendships. But you know, that's not really the way the Bible says life should work. The Bible actually says that being a good friend is as important as being a good spouse or being a good parent. I hope that this series of sermons, and this sermon in particular, inspires deeper conversations between you and your friends that help you build the kinds of friendships that last a lifetime. We have, for five weeks now, been talking about friendships, which is something we talk woefully little about in the church. You always hear churches talking about marriage. You always hear churches talking about parenting and kids. But I'm telling you, biblically speaking, it is as important to be a solid friend, to learn how to be a great friend, as it is to learn how to be a great spouse. To have a great marriage is as important to have a great friendships. And, and to be a great parent, it's no more important than being a great friend. And so sometimes we, as we grow into adulthood, we say we're just supposed to be good at our job and good at home, you know, with our, with our spouse, with our kids, whatever, but friendships are the stuff of kids. No, 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 that is not a Christian way of looking at this. In fact, even your marriage you should look at as a friendship with benefits, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that just popped into my head. So anyway, your friendships matter in the way that you live your life uh, the people you spend your time with, it all matters. There's not a moment of your life that's inconsequential. And so how do we surround ourselves with friends that can go deeper with us, friends that will make our, bring the best out of us out, and friends that will help us live the life God created us to live? How do we cultivate that? Because truthfully, if we're really honest, most of the time we spend with the people we call friends is just leisure. That's kind of where we are as a culture. I'm not being judgmental here, I do the same thing. But most, I'd say 99% of the time we spend with people we call friends is just hanging out. Having a good time, having fun, you know, kicking back, maybe drinking or eating or watching the game. And there's nothing really wrong with that unless that's all you have with your friends. A couple weeks ago, I challenged you to really think about, like inventory the time you spend with your inner circle and what it is that you're doing together. Is there any element of your inner circle relationships that actually leads to more depth, greater growth, more faith, more trust, more love? Or are you just hanging out? And if all you do is hang out with your friends and have fun and do all that stuff, I, I feel like I am I should tell you that that may not be friendship, like in the biblical sense. That might be companionship. That might be fun. And there's nothing wrong with fun companionship, but if we're really talking about the importance of friendship, we have to dig a little deeper, and we have to be accountable to each other. For believers in Jesus, true friendship requires accountability. You can't just hang out and have fun and accept each other exactly the way that you are and never push or challenge each other to grow. Real, solid Christian friendships require us to be held accountable and to hold others accountable as well. But it, 
it really makes us uneasy. I can sense the uneasiness in the room as I talk about it even. Like the idea that we as Christians have a higher calling and a higher standard of living and we should call each other to the mat, call each other to account whenever things maybe are uh, not going the way they should or when our friends are making poor decisions. We are very iffy about this. And I think it's because we don't want to be that Christian. And I understand it. Many of you are Methodists. Methodists have, <laughs> we've made a living on not being that Christian. Like, we don't offend anyone. <laughs> like, we, we just, we're, polite, we're the most polite Christians on the planet. And others of you just kind of want to mind your own business. You know, you kind of have just a, a, a to each his own attitude about life. And whatever someone else's truth is, for them, that's fine. For me, my truth is fine. And I'm just going to mind my own business and they'll mind theirs. And it's all good. That's kind of the mentality that we have because we don't want to be that Christian telling people how to live. When I was um, in college, my freshman year of college, I went to college with the greatest single collection of CDs the world has ever known. Now, if you're under 30... CDs are um, the, the way that we used to listen to music before Napster. And if you're under 30, Napster was <laughs> iTunes, but illegal and free. And, and you know, I, I, in high school, my senior year of high school, I kind of stumbled into this Columbia House membership, Columbia House Club. <laughs> and if you're under 30, Columbia House was this club you could join. And if you bought one CD you really wanted for $27.99, they would send you like 15 CDs you didn't really want for free. And so I ended up with this huge collection of CDs, awesome music. And I took it. And it was my like badge of honor when I went to college. But my first college roommate was a super Christian guy. And he wanted to make sure he evangelized me and discipled me so that he didn't have a heathen roommate, you know, with demons or whatever. And so he, uh, I told him, I said, I'm a Christian, don't worry, and I've been in church all my life. And he said, well, uh, I'm not so sure. Because a real Christian wouldn't listen to Nirvana <laughs> and Soundgarden and Radiohead and... Bush and uh, stuff. We, if, if you're under 30, the 90s, man, the 90s were <laughs> the greatest musical generation, like the greatest decade of American music in history. My apologies to the 60s, but I got to say, can I get an amen? amen? 90s. All right, good. I got some very angry baby boomers in the house right now. All right. Anyway, I felt convicted. I felt like maybe he's right. He told me, he said, you're ruining your witness. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase, but apparently it's something a lot of like evangelical kids say. You're ruining your witness on campus by listening to this secular music. And so I felt really convicted. And so here's what I did. I got a big trash bag and I threw all my CDs away. All of them. Took him to the dumpster, threw it in the dumpster. And it was hard, man. But I felt 
I felt really good about myself after. And my roommate was so proud of me. And I came back to my dorm room and he actually said a prayer over me, thanking God for this deliverance, you know, that had come to me uh, from the evils of that music. Later in that semester, his family, they went through some hard times or something because he had to withdraw from school. And it was a bittersweet thing for me, really, because on the one hand, he was one of my best friends, you know. He brought me closer to Jesus and all that stuff. And on the other hand, I suddenly had a dorm room to myself. And uh, I had a hot new Ecuadorian girlfriend uh, who was named Gio, who's now my wife, who little did I know had no interest in coming to my dorm room at all. And so, but at the time I was very excited at the prospects, you know what I'm saying? And uh, some of you know what I'm saying. Anyway. and so, uh, and so, you know, I was helping him pack up all of his stuff, and I was getting his stuff to the car, and uh, I picked up this huge grocery bag of his stuff, and the strap broke, it snapped, and all the stuff went pouring out on the floor. You'll never guess what was at the bottom of that grocery bag. There it was. Smells like teen spirit. Okay, computer. The bends. Melancholy and the infinite sadness. For those of you under 30, I'm so sorry. But those were great albums, trust me. They were all there. My super Christian roommate went dumpster diving to steal all the music he told me to give up for Jesus. And it was then that I realized there is such a thin line between faithful accountability and religious hypocrisy. And we are so afraid of erring on the side of religious hypocrisy that we go to the other extreme, many of us. We err on the side of whatever we call grace, which is not really biblical, like robust grace. It's just this idea that everything's okay. That everybody is okay, I'm okay and you're okay and you be you. Like that's our motto, like you be you, you do you and I'll do me and like everything's cool, like it's all good. And look, that is a truly okay way to live your life if you don't believe in Jesus. Like if you are not a believer, I don't know why you wouldn't live your life that way. Of course, you're gonna live your life, if all of life itself is a cosmic accident anyway, if all of life is just kind of a happy mistake in the universe and we're just here, so let's party, like it's just, there's no consequences, there's no divine will, there's no plan, there's no eternity, none of that really matters, of course, live your life that way and that is absolutely fine, but if any part of you is slightly convicted that Jesus is who he said he was and, and he has a plan for creation, then you can no longer live your life that way. You do you and your truth is yours and all that stuff. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't jive with the idea that through Jesus, God has a plan for creation. And in the Christian worldview, God's plan for creation for you and for me is more than just the mundane ordinariness of every day. It's more than just hanging out. God has a plan for you that involves much more than that. God's plan for your life is the redemption, renewal, and perfection of creation through Christ, through his grace and his truth. In John chapter 1, the mission of Jesus is described this way, to reveal the glory of God in grace and truth.
This is critical for your friendships. But first of all, we have to understand it from God's vantage point. Because we understand that in God's eyes, all of us are acceptable. All of us are loved. No matter what you did last night, where or with whom you spent last night, or what you did last week, or what you've done with your life to this point, in God's eyes, through the grace of God, you are ultimately completely acceptable, lovable, desirable. God wants the you that sits in this chair right now. However, the moment you receive God's acceptance, he refuses to allow you to remain in your current state. The moment you receive the acceptance of God, he immediately begins to remodel your heart, soul, mind, and body to reflect the image in which you were originally created before you were corrupted by sin. And so, yes, God loves you the way that you are. Yes, of course, on the one hand, in God's eyes, you are beautiful, as we love to say. That's the grace part. The truth, though, is that you're a mess. Like all of us are just a mess. And that's part of the deal, too. You're beautiful and you're a mess. God accepts you and then God changes you. It's grace and it's truth. You can't really have one or the other and call it a godly relationship. And this is one of the biggest, most important differences between your friends and what we've been calling your fans. Your fans are the people like acquaintances, people that will say they're on your side, they say they like you, they wanna hang out and drink and eat and stuff, but when it hits the fan or when life turns south or whatever, uh, your fans are the first to abandon ship or, or, or turn on you. We wanna talk about three quick differences between those fans who are many, probably, you probably have many fans and acquaintances. Some of your family, will qualify as fans in today's conversation, and you'll see what I mean in a second, versus that inner circle of friends that God is calling you to invest more of your time and yourself in. Friends who will help you grow, all right? So the first difference I want to talk about is that fans will tolerate and celebrate your mess. Fans and acquaintances will tolerate and celebrate your mess. Friends will rebuke and correct it. Friends will rebuke and correct it. Rebuke is one of those words we don't really use much anymore. When was the last time you said to someone, rebuke him or something? It just, it's not in our lingo. Maybe it should be, though. Because in, uh, in the gospel, uh, Matthew 17, uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus says this. He says, look out. If a brother or sister sins, you must rebuke the offender. We would rather have the Jesus that tells us the Good Samaritan story and the prodigal son story that warms the heart than this Jesus. But this is Jesus too, y'all. And Jesus says, you must rebuke the offender. Now, context matters because when he says this, he's talking to his inner circle of disciples, the people that are in, right, in covenant membership with him, I suppose. He's not saying go out into the whole world and rebuke ever, every offender or sinner. Like don't go to Montrose or Midtown this afternoon with your megaphones and your picket signs and say my pastor told me to rebuke people. Like don't do that. But I'm talking about your community, your friends who share this desire to follow Jesus together. How do we handle 
Poor choices and bad decisions. Jesus says, rebuke the offender. So, in other words, if your friend is living in sin, it's your responsibility to speak truth and love. Why? It's for the purpose of his or her repentance. Repentance is another one of those religious words. It sounds harsh. It sounds inquisition-y. I made that word up. Um, but, you know, uh, repentance really just means turnaround. It's for the purpose of your friend's turnaround, for the purpose of their new beginning. And if that sounds a little too uh, religious or judgmental to you, I, I just want you to consider the alternative to what we're talking about. I'll give you an example to consider. Um, this really happened. So this was in one of our chapters, one of our small groups. There was a guy in our small group that everyone liked. He was just a likable guy. He is a likable guy. He's still around. And he's a good host in the group. He always um, you know, made sure everybody in the group was comfortable and had fun. But the other guys in the group started noticing some cues from him. Like whenever his wife would speak, he often either contradicted her or rolled his eyes in kind of a dismissive way. One time in front of the group, he even raised his voice to her in a disrespectful way. Now, if your, if your worldview would have you say, well, he should, he should do his thing. We should mind our own business. You know, those other guys in the group should have just left him alone. That is not what they chose to do. They kind of conspired together and said, let's take John out for a beer. And they did. They took him out, bought him a beer. And they talked him through this. And they said, it's because we love you. They said, we expect to see change. We expect to see progress. We expect you to treat your wife with more respect, with more dignity, with more honor. Now, that was not an easy conversation to have. That was unpleasant. It would have been easier to just drink and eat beer nuts and watch the game that was probably on at whatever bar they were at. But they chose to go deeper and they chose to help their friend out toward some progress. Why? Because they loved him. Because they love him, they expect him to work on it. Because they love him, they believed that God has greater plans for him and for his marriage. And those plans do not involve him condescending his wife in front of their friends or at all. And so they called him out. It was not easy. It was unpleasant. But it was friendship in its purest form. Friends rebuke and correct sin. Now, you can't really pay attention to the first point without the second. So here's the second part. Fans, your fans and acquaintances will judge and enjoy your failure. They will judge and enjoy your failure. Your friends, though, will empathize and share it. So when those guys uh, took him out uh, and bought him a beer and they talked about his wife, they didn't come at it from a judgmental angle. They didn't, they didn't come at it from a prideful angle. Guys, please hear me. They... They didn't come at it like we're better husbands than you, like patting themselves on the back. That conversation began this way. Man, we understand. We get it. Marriage is hard work. We've all said things and done things to our wives we wish we could take back. We've disrespected our wives. We've dishonored our wives. We've broken our vows into our wives in different ways. And we regret all of that. And it's because of the regret we feel for that that we come to you with this because we love you. 
it began not from a place of high and mighty soapbox stuff. It was from a place of empathy. We understand. We are with you. We are sinners too. And all of us, none of us have a soapbox to stand on. None of us are any better than any other. And if we're going to hold each other accountable, we must begin there. In uh, Matthew 7, there's this famous passage most of you probably remember from Bible school or maybe a Bible study you've been in recently. To where Jesus says, don't judge. Everybody loves this part. Don't judge, Jesus says, so that you won't be judged. He says, why do you see the speck or the splinter in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? Most of us, if you went to vacation Bible school, you probably think that passage ends there. And that it's just Jesus telling us to live and let live. It's just Jesus telling us to mind our own business and, and just take care of ourselves and don't worry about anybody else. Except for this unfortunate addendum that Jesus adds to this passage where he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Jesus does not give his followers permission to just mind your own business, live and let live. He says, yeah, okay, be accountable for yourself first. Don't go taking specks out of everybody else's eye until you've dealt with your own mess first. Because when you deal with your own mess first and you realize the extent to which God has forgiven you, then it puts you in a more humble, empathetic place to forgive and extend grace to someone else. And it's from that place that grace breaks through, like it did with the man in that group. One of the most shocking things I've seen in ministry was when a couple sat in my office, this was in Kansas City, and they were as close to divorce as any married couple as I've ever worked with, and there have been plenty. But he, they'd been married for like 20 years, and they had kids, and until now it had been pretty smooth, but she had caught him cheating on her. Adultery stuff, right? And they sat there and she was just in a million pieces and he was so defensive and arrogant about it all that I saw very little reason to hope for this marriage to make it. And after we prayed together, I asked her to share with him directly, I was going to be there, but to share with him directly exactly what his actions have done to her and how deeply she's hurting and what it's done to their family and how she feels about her future. And I honestly expected fireworks. I expected her to unload on this guy. If I'm really honest, part of me hoped she would unload on this guy because I felt like he had it coming. I felt like he deserved it. And so I expected her to scream and cry and point at fingers and all this stuff. When she started to talk, she started saying things like, all week I have been praying for God to forgive me. She said, I just keep praying. She said this to her husband, I keep praying that you will forgive me. And her husband looked at me with the most incredulous look in his eyes. He was as shocked as I was, we didn't know what was about to happen. Was she gonna like 
confess to some bigger crime than what her husband did? Like, what was, what was happening in this moment? And she continued, she said, look, you have broken me. She said, you and your cheating have shattered me. My heart is in a million pieces. But I know I have not been the perfect wife to you for these 20 years. I know that I have in my own way broken or not lived up to the vows that I promised you on our wedding day. I know there's more I could have done. And I pray you will forgive me. If you don't know or understand the ways of Christ, that to you might sound archaic. It might sound abusive. It might sound neurotic. But if you know the ways of Christ, you see the wisdom in this woman's words. Because without letting him off the hook, she took the way of Christ Without letting him off the hook, she could have come at him with all of her force. She could have lawyered up and taken him for all he's worth. She could have made him feel like nothing. Or she could have withdrawn, you see. She could have been passive aggressive and just said nothing and kept her distance. Instead, this woman, she took up her cross. She held him accountable, but she took up her cross. And in Doing so, she gave her marriage its only fighting chance to survive because of grace and truth. Their marriage survived because grace and truth can heal all brokenness. Number three your fans, your acquaintances, your, your fans and acquaintances will expect from you inertia. Dig back into your science class, memory bank there. Inertia and redundancy. Your friends, your real friends will expect from you growth and transformation. Your fans they will never have a problem with your mess. They will never have a problem with your repeated mistakes, with your cycles of sin. In fact, your fans, acquaintances, and in some cases, your family members will take some strange comfort in your inadequacy. And they will try, subconsciously usually, they will try to keep you boxed in to the category they've had you in for. They will try to keep you categorized and classified based on who you've always been. Instead of who you are becoming or who you're trying to be, your fans, this is how you know the difference between fans and friends, your fans will be the ones to always try and keep you where you've always been because it gives them some comfort or control or feeling uh, of peace, I guess, to, to have you uh, there. So if you've got a reputation, if you've had a reputation your whole life, maybe, maybe you've been the party girl or you know, the girl that drinks too much and makes bad choices, your fans and acquaintances will do everything they can to remind you that that's who you've always been and that's who you'll always be. If you've always been the womanizer, 
If you've been the guy who goes out and with one purpose in mind and you see women as objects, as notches in your belt, the people around you, your fans and acquaintances, some cases your family members, will do everything they can to help you remember that that's who you've always been and that's who you'll always be. If you've always been kind of an underachiever, semi-depressed, other people call you lazy, but secretly you've just been sad and down, you've always underachieved, your fans and acquaintances will always be the ones to keep you there and say that's who you've always been and they'll even celebrate that with you. If you've always been a corner cutter, you've always been a rule bender to close the deal at work, your fans, at work especially, they will remind you who you've always been and why they like you that way. Friends will never box you in. Friends will never throw your past in your face to tell you that's who you really are. True friends will never remind you of who you were. They will always remind you of who you can become in Christ. Friends will never make you remember all the things you've done. They will always help you see all the things you can do through Christ. This is a critical difference between our friends and our fans. Friends will always expect you to grow. Your positive changes, the, the transformation happening in your life, that will never disappoint a true friend. It will never surprise a true friend. They've seen it coming for years. They knew it was in you. What will surprise and disappoint a true friend is a lack of positive change, a lack of forward movement. That's how you know someone's a friend, if they're disappointed in the lack of transformation happening in your life. And this comes when we're open and honest and accountable to our friends. James, uh, in James uh, chapter 5, this is Jesus' brother, he tells the first Christians, he said, confess your sins to each other every time you gather and be healed. So what we know about the first Christians is that every time they got together like this, they sat in circles together and they confessed all their sins to each other. It's a miracle that the church grew because it's a really terrible evangelism like tactic. Like, you know, like we're supposed to draw a crowd and be fun and light, you know, like, and that's what the first Christians did. They just confessed their sins and shared their mess with each other openly with no shame. And the church grew. Over time, though, the church became complacent about confession. And we took confession out of the small group arena and we made it into something else, right? Confession became like, I think Christians just decided instead of like airing my dirty laundry to everyone, it would be great if I could just air it with one guy. Like, and if he could be sitting in a booth, like, and there's like a curtain between us, and if like he could be not married so he doesn't have a wife to gossip with, like that would be fantastic, you know? <laughs> and when I'm done, if he could like tell me some arbitrary prayer to say a certain number of times so I can feel better and then go out and do the exact same thing again next week that I did last week. I'm sorry, Catholic friends, I love you. So that's what confession became until the Protestant Reformation. And then in the Protestant Reformation, we took confession and put it back where it belonged in the small group setting. And the Methodist church is part of that Protestant Reformation. And the first Methodists, they gathered, Charles and, West, Charles and uh, John Wesley gathered the first Methodists together, not in big churches kind of like this or you know, uh, bigger churches and stuff. They gathered in small groups. That's how the movement grew. 
And every time they gathered in small groups, they went around a circle and checked in with each other. We do that too in our small groups, in our chapters. If you're in one, and I hope that you are, you see that we are honoring our heritage by going around a circle and checking in with each other. It's just that we do it a little differently than the Wesleys and the First Methodists did back then. In fact, they might just be rolling in their graves whenever we do our check-ins because our check-ins look something like this. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> the lightest, most casual like pass the wine I'm okay you know like that's how our check-ins usually go and it's fine and it's great whatever our small groups are growing but when the Methodists gathered and the Methodist movement was growing they checked in this way they had to answer and go around a circle and answer the question what sins have you committed since we last got together I was talking about this with Gio this week Gio leads our small group initiative like it's hard enough to get y'all to go to small groups as it is and if we had that as a, like a barrier, <laughs> I don't think any of you would ever go. Like, what sins have you committed since we last got together? That's all we would talk about. We wouldn't have time for anything else because all the sins <laughs> would just add up. And uh, that's, that's where the Methodist movement began. It was impolite and uncomfortable. Sometimes it was unpleasant, but man, there was growth. What I want you to see is that it's easier to check out. It's easier to have acquaintances. It's easier to just watch the game. It's easier to just drink wine. It's easier to just stay on the surface level and ignore all the stuff going on beneath it. But I'm telling you, that's a fine way to live your life unless you believe in Jesus. If any part of you believes in Jesus, it's impossible to get around the fact that you were created with a purpose. That this one life God has given you matters more than you can possibly know. This one life and the way that you spend your time, the people with whom you spend your time, it all matters more than you can possibly fathom. Your life, the story God is telling through your life is too important a story to waste with just acquaintances and just having fun. We must go deeper. We must be challenged. We must challenge each other so that we can grow into the people God created us to be that we can share the story God created us to share. When we celebrate baptisms, it's a reminder of that. The act of baptism is a remembrance of the deep purpose with which we were created. This life, there's nothing ordinary about it. There's nothing mundane about it. There's so much more for which we are called to live. My prayer as we continue through this series isn't that you stop hanging out with your acquaintances. I don't want you to cut ties with people you don't consider inner circle friends. But I do want you, and I hope that you will inventory the time that you're spending, that you will invest more of yourself in relationships with people who hold you accountable. Also, I hope that you will see how God has put people in your life, in your inner circle, who need to be held accountable. And that you will be courageous enough to go beyond the mundane, go deeper, and hold your friends accountable as well. The life you're living now, it matters. God has great plans for your future that you cannot see yet. Trust me, God has plans for your future that involve your change and your transformation and your growth. Surround yourself with people 
who will bring that future out in you.